Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. This week, we learn what it takes to make the leap into freelancing. We speak to someone with fresh and first-hand experience on this. Victoria Hudson is the former head of video of Hello Magazine, but nine months ago, she became her own boss. She now works as a freelance videographer for brands, publishers, and influencers. If you're thinking of making the switch to freelancing, it might feel like a step into the unknown. Victoria talks to us today about the realities of chasing payments, managing your timetable, some tricks of the trade that you just pick up on the job, and all the groundwork you need to have done before diving in. Just a quick reminder to all of you tuning in today, if you'd like to jump on the podcast with me, do pop an email over to jacob at journalism.co.uk. Victoria joins us on Google Hangout after this quick message from the journalism.co.uk jobs board. This podcast is brought to you by journalism.co.uk. We bring you the latest jobs in the media and communications industry. Our job of the week is the test editor position at EEIO Limited. To apply for this opportunity and more, visit our jobs board on www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Victoria, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. What I'd like to talk to you about today is kind of the reality of freelance work, something that you've done uh, quite recently and made the transition from the working world. Um, tell me, why would, a, why would a journalist want to work for themselves and what are some of the pros and cons of being your own boss? When I think about what made me take the leap into freelancing, the short answer is that my definition of success changed. So when you set out in your career, you you know, we're told that it's climbing a ladder. We have a vertical line in mind. Step up, step up, step up, step up, getting higher. And now I would describe my definition of success as more of a horizontal line. It's about reach. It's about working across several different brands that I love. When it comes to actually being your own boss, obviously the pros are exactly that, being your own boss, being in charge of your own time. I love this quote from um, an interview with Bill Nye when he was talking about why he loved being an actor. And I don't think it was the main reason, but one reason that he said is that it gave him a great thrill to walk around while other people were at work. <laughs> and I think that's so true. Um, that idea of having that kind of, um, that time, stealing it back for yourself. Um, there's the opportunity when you work for yourself to make the same amount of money, if not more, in less time than you might do um, in a salaried um, position. And also something I've become aware of recently is that when you work for yourself and you work directly with lots of different brands, the amount of positive feedback you get is more frequent. Whereas when you work in-house, obviously, you're expected day in day out to do a great job when you work with new people all the time those wonderful reactions that you get happen on a weekly basis which is amazing great for your self-esteem the cons that i found have been that you're on your own a lot bearing in mind that when i'm actually out filming and shooting that's a very social part of my job but when i'm editing when i'm doing work for, towards my social media you're on your own so you have to be okay in your own company and when things aren't going well or when you're in a difficult situation, it is magnified by the fact that you don't have um, people to chat to about it. 
Um, obviously, there's a cash flow problem when the clients, you know, aren't able to pay you on time. And the reality is that you're not going to get every single job that you might inquire about or, you know, hope for. So you have to get used to that as well. Lots of things there for us to obviously expand on. Um, what did you expect freelance work to be like before you made the switch? What were some of your preconceptions and kind of assumptions going in and were they kind of busted nine months later? I took the leap because an opportunity presented itself and I think had I stopped to think about it I might not have. There's a lot of ways that you could talk yourself out of it. Um, so I wouldn't say that I had that many preconceptions. Obviously I believed that work would be there or work would come so I had enough kind of confidence that it was overall a good decision to make. I think other people's preconceptions of freelancing have been that you have lions all the time, which is not true. I've had about one lion in nine months. Um, or that you work in your pyjamas, which is also not true for me. I have to get up and ready with the rest of London to feel like I'm setting myself up for the day. And that you work less, which is not necessarily true because you spread your work out to suit you. And often you have to put in a lot more work um, than you might have done. But the payoff is that that's for you and, and solely for you and your business. For a lot of people, maybe switching from university to freelancing or indeed the security of a, of a job to freelancing probably feels like they're, they're stepping into the unknown and, and not probably sure what they're getting themselves into. Um, how did you prepare for that change, Victoria? What did you do to make sure that you weren't stepping into uh, into a market that you were unprepared for? Well, the first thing is either having existing clients or a very, very promising set of potential clients. So one of the early indicators to me that it was, you know, a viable option was that everywhere I went, people were saying, oh, this is amazing. Are you also freelance? Do you also do freelance projects? And Obviously, when you work in-house, your, your answer is either no or you get permission, as I did from bosses of mine, to be able to take on limited projects in your limited amount of spare time. But I had been given the, the strong sense that there was an appetite there, not just for video in general, but that there were people that really wanted to work with me directly. So that you, it's important to kind of suss out that there is work out there for you and clients for you. So that part I actually did. I mean, you absolutely have to have a buffer of money to keep you going, to allow you time to get your first jobs and to cover you for those jobs that don't pay within the, the time frame that you're expected to be paid in. And don't spend that buffer, okay? It's there for a reason. <laughs> so there's no excuses if it's someone's birthday or Christmas or anything like that. What's, what's a good ballpark figure to have as that buffer, you think? I would say maybe two months rent or mortgage and you know whatever else you would consider to to make up your absolutely essential bills you know if you cut out all luxuries how much money do you need to survive like the longest i've ever been overdue payment is two months so so that's what i've kind of taken away from that experience and also going into it what i would say is you need um you do need that clear sense of what your earning needs are you can't go into it blind, like, oh, okay, it'd probably be cool if I get like six projects in the next fortnight. You need to have a, a, an idea of how much do I need to earn a month to make this, first of all, viable, and then secondly, profitable. 
the but the buffer is there to prevent you getting into trouble hopefully with every project that you take on your expenses are covered but a percentage of it is profit bearing in mind that another percentage of it is tax is reinvestment in kit for example in my case which is really expensive is a contribution to your insurance or setting up your limited company and hopefully you're making profit from the get-go but you leave that buffer untampered with so that it's there if things go wrong like on day one of you being freelancer what were your what were your first moves i was very very lucky because having made the decision to leave hello which was not easy because it was a dream job and i absolutely loved it and the team there i then went away for a few months and it was during that time that i was away traveling that i decided yeah okay i'm gonna go freelance when i get back as it happened, Hello hadn't yet um, found replacements. And so I was able to do a very short term part time contract with them only for something like six weeks or eight weeks. Um, but it, it worked for both of us because it helped them out and it helped me get on my feet. So that is one thing I, I would, would recommend. And also bear in mind that there are different types of ways to be freelance. So at the moment, I work on a project-by-project project basis, but it could be that at some point in the future, I take on a stint of work, that is anything from one week to 12 weeks to six months. That, that is quite common in, from the jobs that I've seen advertised around video production. That was a brilliant and helpful step in actually tr transitioning to becoming freelance. And whilst that was happening, I became very, very busy because you try and take on everything at the beginning with my own freelance projects as well. And then by the sort of third month, when I had officially kind of left Hello, I was in a position where my freelance work was regular, it was not overwhelming and it was not too sparse. So it was, it was an amount that, could, that I could sustain. Because the last thing you want to do, presumably, is to take on more projects than you can handle and miss deadlines and that kind of thing. Exactly what is your mindset to prevent that from happening? Okay, so I might not have like a hard and fast rule, but for example, if there's more than like two shoots in a week, I know that that's entering into a bit of a danger zone because it's physically very, very challenging shooting. They're long days with heavy equipment, as we've sort of talked about. So... I guess, yes, unofficially, there's like a magic number of shoots, which would be around two um, per week. And then I, I know how much time per week I need to dedicate to admin and invoices and self-promotion. And I know when I quote for projects, I am very, very clearly laying out for the client and for myself what the work involved in that project is. So if I've quoted before we've even started the project that this involves two days of editing, then I'm already blocking those two days out in my diary, if you see what I mean. So I guess that is how I kind of keep a, a clear idea of my capacity and you monitor it constantly. In your mind, do you have like a, a percentage breakdown of your week that you would spend on admin, spend on shoots, spend on editing and all these other things? I think that my ideal week involves at least one shoot, a couple of days of editing, and that will be across probably the shoot that I've done that week, but also other kind of ongoing projects. A day of planning, admin, and social media promotion and content creation for that. 
and probably, you know, half a day or so working on um, upcoming projects or which might already kind of be in the pipeline or, you know, working on leads um, for, for new projects. An acceptable amount of hours to me is anything up to the amount that I was working before which was like the standard 37.5, I think, and it and the nature of my jobs, which were involved evening events and entertainment events, you would work sometimes outside of the normal nine to five. But obviously, ideally, you want to do slightly less than that. So my preference is that overall, I'm only working, say, four days a week, but that that is spread out and done at a time that really suits me. Do you have any good tools for like productivity and keeping your schedule nice and clean and organised? Um, I love my Google Calendar. It's colour coordinated, which will not shock anyone that knows me. <laughs> um, I really, I really like Trello. If people don't know, you know, Trello is kind of like a visual board based list system. I mean, I've made that sound really dull, but it's very helpful. Um, and I have recently started using a free plugin or app called Clockify which tracks like second by second what you spend um, on a project and I th the time you spend on a project. And it's so helpful because sometimes you really underestimate the amount of admin time, communication time um, that you might spend on a project. I think this probably applies to all journalists actually, whatever your format is, there might be an amends request, something really, really simple. And I'm terrible for thinking, oh, super quick job, I'll just do that. And actually it might be 15 minutes or 30 minutes worth of work but just because you happen to be free and able to do it at the time doesn't mean that it didn't kind of cost you anything. That's useful. Um, thinking about putting a price on your time, how do you figure out how much to charge? I, I guess the concern for a lot of people would be overselling or underselling themselves. So how do you how do you strike the right balance? It's really, really important not to undersell yourself and not to be apologetic about the rates that you charge. Um, there are different ways that people reach the rates that they charge. I started by looking at the competitive rates, so what other videographers and editors and journalists were charging, just to give me a good sense of whether or not I was above, right in the middle or below. Because it's really important that you're on a par with people that are doing your job. Then you break it down. You say, how much does it actually cost for me to use my kit? My kit is worth thousands of thousands of pounds. So I have to make sure that the value of that kit is accounted for every time that it's used. The insurance, the software that is necessary to create videos. Then you've got your business skills that there is a monetary value to, your expertise and also your reliability. And then on top of that, you have to think about your, the personal expense. So, you know, when you're accepting a job, you might be agreeing to take time away from your family. That's really important to me because the reason that I went freelance was not to work every hour under the sun. It was to maintain a really brilliant balance between the things that I love in my life. So you think about the personal cost and just make sure that's accounted for, because if it's not, you'll feel really bitter about the projects that you take on because they are obviously going to take you away from other things that are important to you. Thinking about 
sending and receiving invoices what is kind of good and common practice when do you kind of need to put your foot down and assert your value and and, and kind of chase up payments look so when it comes to invoices i think remember really that the the project has started long before you are writing it videoing it photographing it whatever so it's really good advice to send over a contract ideally at the point of booking then there are no surprises and you're fully backed up when you invoice with the terms that you then invoice with. I invoice for the shoot immediately after the shoot has happened so that that is set in motion because sometimes you might have a turnaround of a week which might be fine but sometimes you might have a longer project which might not be fully edited for four weeks so do you really want to be without your entire fee for that time? No. So I think you choose when you kind of submit the invoice and you lay out your um, payment terms. So my payment terms are 14 days. It's completely fine if someone comes back to me at the beginning when they first see those and say, oh, actually, do you know what? Because of X, Y, Z reason, our payment terms have to be 30 days. That's fine. Then it gets amended. And I do have a late payment fee on my invoice as well. But I have to say that is a hard one because... You're, you, I mean, you do ultimately have to enforce it, of course you do, but it's difficult because you're working with clients that you care about keeping. So you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to annoy them. So I kind of sympathise with that um, position, but obviously you're perfectly entitled to charge a late payment fee if they're late and you've stated that that's part of your terms. And they, they tend to understand that, right? That, that you've got a business to protect. Yeah, I've started using that phrase recently I've, I've started to say you know in order to keep my business sustainable so for example discounts is quite a quite a gray area isn't it should you ever give discounts you know what if it's a what if it's a friend a friend's friend what if it's a small business what if it's a charity and a lot of us that love what we do and we actually also really want to help and we we love that that's a part of our job we can help people with our job we think oh it would be really nice to give them this massive discount but then I thought no, hang on a minute, before you rush and give someone, you know, 25%, you are running a business and you need to say to yourself, in order to keep my business sustainable, I need to make this amount of money as my bottom line and this amount of money to make profit. One of the things we've also touched on really or, or along the lines of is kind of access to the right people to speak to and networking. Um, how do you know who to contact? How do you become a kind of a regular source of contact for these uh, sort of commissioning editors and people who will uh, take you on for projects? For me, I create beautiful video content and campaigns for female and family focused brands. That's what I do. So the people that I often need to be in touch with is the marketing department or the creative teams or in fact the social media or events teams. Those are the people that have projects and campaigns they would like video to be a significant part of. So knowing who best to kind of build a relationship with, you can work that out based on the type of projects that you want to create or that you are creating. In the newspaper world or in the magazine world, you're not gonna pitch a news piece to the opinions editor, right? So it's the same kind of common sense um, approach. Who is the right person to speak to? You don't just pitch like cold, you might meet these people months and months and months before they ever need anything um, video wise. And then it's a really good idea to 
keep in touch with them across the different um, social platforms so that you're always kind of front of mind when it does come that they're looking for, in my case, video. Are you part of like online groups and forums? Is, is that a useful thing for you at all if you're on those? Yeah, I think it's, I've only come to it recently. So there's Facebook groups for videographers and photographers. Now photography is something that I do, but it's not my main source of income. But often what will happen is that a photographer will post on that group about a job that they have where the client also wants a videographer. So it's worth kind of thinking a little bit outside the, the box, not just isolating yourself to the one thing that you are kind of known for doing. I'm in uh, female-focused groups, I'm in young entrepreneur groups and things like that because you never really know where those connections will lead. But yes, I'm also a regular on jobs boards, not always from an application point of view, but just because I want to get a sense of what's out there. So I have job alerts set up still, purely to just be kept in the loop about what's out there. Obviously, my previous job title was head of video, so sometimes I still get advertised jobs, full-time jobs that look like that. When you go to the description of those jobs, you will see that under the roles of a head of video, it might say, managing a team of freelancers. And then it's like, bingo, okay, I know that this company hires freelancers. I'm not interested in this full-time position, but now I know that I can put them on a list of people to get in touch with about potential kind of crossover. And, and presumably that features in your, your pitch or your initial outreach to them. I've seen that you work with freelancers. I can contribute X, Y, Z. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these are a couple of good examples of sort of the reality of, of freelancing and some of the things that you learn along the way. It's some of the things that you don't learn at university. What other examples are there of things that you just, um, tricks of the trade that you pick up along the way as a freelancer? I follow people on Instagram and other platforms that really kind of inspire me and make me better. They're not necessarily other videographers. They might not even be other journalists, although, of course, I follow people in that market as well. But by following these business focused people, they have told me things like, make sure you know your niche. Can you sum up what you do in a sentence? So I can, it's a little bit of a long sentence at the moment, I'm still working on it, but I can and I understand the importance of it. Limit what you talk about on your online platforms to only a few, you know, three or four things. And in, in three or four things, to be honest, I can tick off what I do now, what I've trained in and the other ways that I make money or the other opportunities that I'm open to. Otherwise, it kind of dilutes the message. So I think tricks of the freelance trade, that is what's been most useful to me. You know, following people in the kind of business and startup sphere. And to give you some names to start with, that is Lucy Werner, who's written a book called Hype Yourself, PR tips for small businesses and freelancers. Fleur Emery, who's a startup expert, and she does panels and things at the wing. That's just two of the people that have really helped to kind of take my kind of business mindset to the next level. And I love this question about what do they not teach you at uni about being freelance, but actually I have to flip it. I have to think, well, what did we pick up that actually hasn't been true or wasn't helpful? So one thing that you hear all the time when you're studying for journalism or media is this, this whole narrative of you don't get into journalism for the money. And I think, okay, yes, as an industry, we know there hasn't always been tons of money around, but I'm in this industry because I love it. And I'm also 
in it to make money. It's a business that I'm running. So I don't think that that's a helpful um, phrase to kind of keep perpetuating among students. And the second stereotype is that you have to be the best, the first in, the last out, and all of that kind of thing, which I, I get it because it's trying to say like, have a, you know, be the most committed that there is out there, be super competitive. But there is a lot to be said for just being nice to people. People remember people that are genuinely kind and lovely to be around and working hard. And along the way, yeah, you learn that you have to make sure that people recognise that you're working hard and that that value is being returned to you. So to summarise, so that I've understood it correctly, understand your niche and your USP. Um, journalism is a viable career. And don't underestimate the power of just being nice. Yeah, why not? And to finish up with your number one tip for becoming your own boss, Victoria. Speaking from my own experience, I put most of my time and my efforts into approaching and networking and working with brands that I am really 100% behind. So I get it. We all have to take on bread and butter jobs. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And you need them at times. But I work so, so hard at my job. I always have done. I won't deliver anything less than my absolute best. And that is what I'm giving. And in, in order to give that, it has to be to, to brands and campaigns and individuals that you, you really care about. And the best part is that in return, they feel that from you. They get that, they value it because they see it in the results. And it means that they are the people that are gonna pay you and they're the people that are gonna rebook you. It's good advice. And it's, it's been useful to get a sense of the realities of freelance life. What I've learned from this is to identify exactly what your specialism is. In your case, Victoria, it's female and family focused video content. Shortlist very intentionally who you'd be a good fit for and who you want to work with. And then do all you can to connect and stay in touch with all the relevant people that would look after those opportunities. Um, so do your homework. Uh, Victoria, thank you very much for your time and insights. It's, uh, it's been very interesting. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Thanks as well to you at home or on the commute for tuning in. If you like what you heard, you can also find the journalism.co.uk podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So hit that subscribe button. If you're after some more guidance on how to get started in freelancing, check out our freelancing course on the 4th of May 2020 in London. This four-week course will cover pitching, story hunting, mastering the masthead and building your brand. You'll find more details on that course as well as many others by visiting www.journalism.co.uk forward slash courses. Our NewsRide conference is also taking place on the 4th of June 2020 at Media City UK in Salford, Greater Manchester. You can take advantage of our early bird offer which will save you £50 if you book before the 28th of February. Head to newsride.com for more details on that offer. That's all we have time for this week. I've been your host Jacob Granger. Until next time. <laughs>